Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The New Orleans that I remember from when I moved here is easier to find on the outskirts of town now because those are the places that have been less affected by gentrification and I think still contain a higher density of people that have lived there for decades. That was Brett Anderson, a restaurant critic at the New Orleans Times-Picayune. New Orleans has always been a culinary mashup, but is there something new brewing post-Katrina? From Middle Eastern hummus to Japanese ramen, is there a new New Orleans? And will the old guard, Antoine's and Commander's Palace, survive the change? I'll be speaking to Brett in just a little bit. Before that, Zoe Ajonia, author of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, is with us, and she thinks that it's time that Africa make its mark on the world of cuisine. Zoe, how are you? I'm great. I'm really, really well. How are you doing? Great. I've spent some time with Zoe's Ghana Kitchen cookbook. One of the premises of the book, of course, is that it's time that people took a, a closer look at West Africa. Uh-huh. Now, I was chatting with Pierre Chum, who's from Senegal, and, and he made the point that rice, jambalaya, uh, gumbo, many of the things that we connect with the American South actually came from West Africa. So there, there are a lot of connections there already, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, gumbo is basically okra soup or based on okra soup and jambalaya and uh, paella and things like that definitely have their roots in jollof. So, yeah, I mean, obviously what's happened over years is people have adapted and developed those recipes and flavours from West Africa in, and made them their own. Um, and that's what my cookbook's about, you know, is getting people to embrace those flavours and not be intimidated by those ingredients and use them in everyday cooking, you know, because Africa is the last continent where people haven't really been shouting and singing about all those amazing flavours and ingredients there. You know, one of the other things that has struck me, even in a place like Thailand or Senegal, is that I would say, as sort of a you know, uninformed American from New England, we talk about Ghanaian food or Senegalese food or Thai food. There's no such thing because every region is quite different. Senegal, it's very dry in the north and very uh, exactly you yeah. know wet in the south, and so every region has its own food. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. A Ghanaian food is more than one thing, you know. There's lots of different regions. In the north, they use lots of different pulses and that are available to them, like locust beans and stuff, which people in the south don't use by the coast. By the coast, they eat lots more fish. You know, in the Volta region, they eat lots of grilled tilapia. In the Ashanti regions to the west, it's like fufu and fermented maize. So it's about the environment where things can grow and what grows in those environments and also the tools people have to cook with that changes you know, dishes change region by region. It's a vast country, so the, it does have different regional specificities. You mentioned fufu, which is featured in your book. Could you just explain uh, what that is? 
Fufu. So fufu is another staple. It's like a carb. It's kind of like a, a viscous texture. It's like a it's like a dumpling, like a potato dumpling kind of. And people use it to eat with. So it's also like an instrument, a tool of eating. But it's made by kind of pounding your main carb vegetables. So take a yam. I don't mean a sweet potato. I mean a, like a puna yam, a yam yam. And you pound it with water until you get it into like a starchy, uh, viscous uh, ball, really. And you, do, you can do that with plantain and cassava. But yeah, it's basically pounded vegetables. Uh, peanuts play a, a huge role in West Africa. Actually, we just did a recipe for suya, which is sort of the, the strips of meat, skewers of meat with a, a, yeah. a ground peanut base coating on it. But, yeah. but, but peanuts are all over West Africa. Could you just talk about that and how they're used? Yeah, they're, they're used in lots of different ways as part of the cooking process. They're ground into paste, which we know is peanut butter. Or very, very commonly, they're used as a garnish. I mean, even grilled plantain, like as a street food, it always comes with the ground peanuts on top or suya, as you described, or chicken gizzards. Take me through what would you have for breakfast? Um, wache. So wache is a couple of things, actually. So it's the name of the meal. So the meal has several components. And wache is also the name of a rice that goes with that meal. And it's also the name of the red leaves, millet leaves, that are used to colour the rice. Mm. So wache is three things in one. But So when people are going for wache for breakfast, like my uncle, for example, he's going um, down the street and there's a woman there and she's made basically a seven-course meal for people's breakfast. Mm. And so the meal consists of wache rice, which is um, rice and beans, or rice and peas, for, if that makes it easier for people to translate. Um, you'd have a boiled egg in there. You'd have some noodles in there. You'd have some shito, hot pepper sauce in there. And you'd have some mixed meat stew. And all of those things together mm. are wache. <laughs> and it, it's literally like a dinner, but people eat for breakfast. It's amazing. Like if street food vendors here were doing cracking that out, they'd be making a killing. In fact, why aren't I doing that? I should be doing that. <laughs> Yeah. Let, let's assume someday you come to Milk Street in Boston and give a cooking class. That was a hint, by the way. So is there one... <laughs> is that an invite? I'm that's totally a, definitely sure. an invite. Uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you. Uh, w- just pick a recipe that would, you know, make sense for the American home kitchen and, and is, is pretty typical. Easy. It's sort of, yeah, well, it, it checks a lot of boxes off in terms of what Ghana cooking is. Yeah, it's going to be um, peanut butter stew for sure. I mean, it's like a comfort food. It's like being wrapped in a blanket when you eat that. It's a one-pot dish that's super easy to make. It can be a vegetarian version, it can be a vegan version, or it can be like a really meaty stock version. So so peanut butter, it, I thought peanut butter was more of an American thing. So you actually have peanut butter and they, they use it for other things, or this is the primary use for it? Once again, babe, we invented peanut butter. Of course. It's just, it's just ground nuts. Another thing we stole from you. Okay. <laughs> Great. We invented that, babe, for sure. Um, it's ground nuts. Yeah, you can see people making it in the market, huh. like fresh peanut butter. It's amazing. Well, well, to be fair, I'd say, though, picking up your book, It's Always Gone a Kitchen Cookbook, I mean, it is a different it's, – it's quite different than picking up an Italian book or even – picking up a book from the Far East or Europe, the, the, the ingredients, the way foods are put together, the taste profiles uh, for most people here are, are quite different. Uh, yeah, sh- uh, we, we've, we've taken or stolen or 
had whatever a lot of those dishes came from <laughs> West Africa, however you want to put it nicely. But but the but the cooking is um, it's a different flavors and different way of thinking about food, which is what makes it so exciting, right? No, absolutely, that's true. I'm, I'm, of course, I mean, these are new flavors and ingredients for many people, and I mean that's the point. It's to, it's to show people new ways. For me, it's about I'm really proud of Ghanaian food and culture, and it's about sharing that with as many people as possible and being like, here is the entry point to finding out a little bit more about what Ghana's about. And people access culture most easily through food, right? Absolutely. Zoe, thank you so much. Uh, Real pleasure. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. That was Zoe Ajunya. She's author of the new cookbook, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. Now it's time to take some of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? You bet. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Bruce in Charleston, South Carolina. Lovely town. I love Charleston. <laughs> you lucky I man. Today I wanted to ask you all about cooking with MSG. And I had read the chapter on MSG in Eight Flavors, which Chris reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, debunking the junk science behind Chinese restaurant syndrome. So my question has three parts. What would you use MSG in? What does it do to flavors? And in what quantities would you use it? Well, first of all, it's used all over Asia. It's just an ingredient that they use. Uh, It provides tremendous umami. Accent, you know, is here in this country is essentially MSG. Bouillon cubes, for example, West Africa, they grind them up uh, with peanuts and use them as a coating for barbecue all the time, like chicken skewers. So use it in very small amounts, maybe one-eighth of the amount of salt called for in a recipe you use for MSG. It's an enhancement of a meaty umami flavor. I could see you adding it to, say, sautéed mushrooms, but would you add it to cucumber? I'd add it to vegetable broth in a second because yep. vegetable broth is so awful. Yeah. I mean, okay. all, vegetable broth is inedible, right? It's, well, pretty much. Homemade isn't so bad. You roast the vegetables first, it's better. Put an eighth of a teaspoon of MSG, you'll love it. Okay, oh. so you'd use it for vegetables too. Well, yeah, it's not just for dishes that have meat in it, it or mushrooms or Parmesan cheese. It just enhances its umami. It's a pointer upper. It's a spice, essentially. So use it in moderation. Give it a shot. But there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's got a bad name. There's the anti-MSG contingent. Yeah, which but, is huge. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's just another ingredient. So accent, that yeah. thing you buy at the supermarket. That's is what actually, it is. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, See? you could decide you don't want to cook with chemicals, but salt is sodium chloride. So Yeah, no, go. this is true. How about our caller? Bruce, <laughs> are you still there? Bruce say <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> I know. No, I bought a package of it at the Asian market. They sell it in very large quantities. Yeah, they're using yeah, it. Yeah, I've got it in the shaker, and I'm just not sure what I should shake it on. Well, put it in a stew, in a soup, in a broth, uh, just a little bit. And, you know, if you like it, you like it. There's yep. nothing wrong with it. It's just got a bad name for no particular reason. Play around reason. with it. So nothing wrong with it. Try it if you like it. Just use it in very small quantities. Okay, do you use it instead of salt or nope. in addition to salt? No, I, I would still use salt, but just use about an eighth as much MSG, MSG. salt. Just add a little bit, a tiny pinch. And see, you know, maybe everyone's going to go, hey, wow. Bruce is a great a genius. You genius, you. <laughs> Isn't it funny that what's old is new? You know, I mean, nobody's saying that. Like us? 
Yes. Well, that's true. Here you are with a whole new company, right. Milk what Street. Old is yeah, what old is there? But I'm just saying that, you know, not that anybody's saying that MSG is good for you. They're just saying it's not bad for you. But all those other things they used to say were bad for us, you know, like coffee and alcohol and chocolate and eggs are now good for us. It's sort of fun. The secret to long life and happiness is a pinch of MSG every morning. All there right. There we go. In I'll, your coffee. I'll, I'll do the MSG, you know, promotion board. Yes. 60-second spot. Bruce, uh, there you go. G- give it a shot. There's nothing wrong with it. See if you like it. If you do, use it. Thanks a lot. I appreciate right. your help. With Thanks it. for calling. Bye-bye. Yes. Hello. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Janet from Maryland. Hi, Janet. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I'm sure you have a good question. Well, I have a conundrum. <laughs> and you want to know how to bake it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Oh, <laughs> terrible. Rim shot. Terrible. Okay. I like to cook, and I like cuisines from all over the world. So but do I we. I cannot abide cilantro. You got what tons of you got tons of company. You were born with the anti cilantro gene. It's not your fault. Tastes like soap, right? It tastes disgusting. <laughs> no, I actually, you know, I had cilantro for the first time in the early '60s. We went to Mexico City on vacation or something, and I, for some reason, I hated it. I couldn't bear it. And then when I turned about forty, something happened. Anyway, the answer is you can use almost anything. Parsley, people say, but I don't think parsley and cilantro are all the same. I, I would mix parsley with a stronger herb. I think dill, a little bit of dill with parsley gets you in the ballpark of that sort of gaminess to the cilantro. You could use a little bit of mint. You could use a little bit of tarragon. So I'd use a base of parsley with a little bit of something stronger with it. You know what I always think is not that I would try to replace the actual taste of the cilantro, which is pretty unique. I mean, what you just suggested, I agree with. But I think about the Asian countries where they use mint and basil and cilantro interchangeably Mm -hmm. and sometimes in combination. And so my feeling is that usually mint or basil will work in place or together of the cilantro. Why try to replicate something you can't replicate? Use something else, which is how people really cook around the world. What's fun with herbs is just experimenting anyway. But I know that you're pretty safe because somebody's already tested it out for us, all the Southeast Asians, using those three herbs together right. or interchangeably. So that's what I would recommend. Well, that's good. The parsley and dill sounds good. I I'm think so, too. I'm not a fan of mint, and I'm not a fan of basil Bas- either. Oh, okay. Well, then I think, Chris, you were right. Parsley <laughs> parsley, and dill is okay, the way I, to go. I have a pad of paper. I'm keeping yeah, track. Yeah, keeping score. Okay. <laughs> One for me. Ding. Oh, ding. One Back for me. at you. Okay. Okay. All right, Janet. Give that well, a shot. That's great. Thanks. Okay. I'm going to try that then. Thanks for calling. Good talking to you. Thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question in search of an answer, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. You can also send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Kathy Burns. Hi, Kathy Burns. Where are you calling from? Bella Kinwood, Pennsylvania, right outside Philly. Oh, I love Philly. How can we help you? I'm calling because I have a problem with loaf pans. For years, I just, you know, baked stuff. I guess it was moist enough that when the outsides were dry, they weren't too bad. But recently, I did a coconut pound cake, and the outside was like cement. I never can get the centers to get a clean stick out without drying out the outside. I've even gone to the point where... You know, they have um, rings for pies to mm-hmm. put on the crust. Yep, yep. 
well, I've made something out of foil. aluminum foil yeah. over the edge of the pan, trying to keep the edges from drying out. Uh, I don't know whether I'm doing something wrong. I have a suspicion. Tell me about your oven. It's not a great oven. How long have you had it? Not that long. This is like the third oven I've had recently. It's a convection, but I don't use convection. Well, my strong suggestion is get someone in from the appliance company locally and have them come in and test it and adjust it to make sure it's on. It sounds like your oven's too hot because what's happening is the top of the pound cake or whatever it is, loaf cake, is drying out before the center is cooked, and so you need a lower oven temperature. So for starters, I would reduce the oven by 50 degrees Oh, okay. and try baking, and then that might help, uh, or go buy a really good oven thermometer. But I, oh, I did that too. Yeah. The problem with all ovens are that they go up and they down. They cycle. Yeah. Sometimes ovens cycle not just 10 or 15 degrees. They cycle 30 or 40. I would reduce temperature by 50 wow, and give it more time. Well, okay, do a 25. Uh, no, I'll do 50. I just... Risk it. Go for it. Walk on the wild side. Uh, and it, and <laughs> give it more time. And that way you won't try out the top. That would be my guess. Did you used to have success making these kind of cakes? Well, this is the first time I've ever tried a pound cake. I make a lot of breads. Pound cakes, I do have to say in your defense, pound cakes are... That and Genoise are the two most difficult cakes. Does this have baking powder in it, or there's any leavener in the recipe? Oh, I don't remember. The problem with pound cake is the eggs have to be room temperature. The butter has to be the right temperature. Uh, If you make any mistake in temperature, they're not going to come out well. So it could also be, you know, pound cakes are just very difficult to do well. I had no idea. I thought it was just... No. Like any other cake. Let, no, me, let me ask you one other question. What kind of sugar are you using? Store brand or a name brand? Store brand. That could be the problem, too. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, no. I read this article about how this lady been making pound cakes forever, and she switched from a name brand really? to a store brand because they have different size crystals. Uh-huh. And that, you know, a big part of, you know, a pound cake is the beating of the butter and the sugar, which creates the air pockets. And uh, the store brand, I think they were smaller crystals, so they weren't creating enough pocket to get the cake to rise properly. So that's another thought. I don't know. It could be temperature, too. Because the pound cake in a loaf pan Mm -hmm. cooks from the outside in, so it's understandable that the edges would get overcooked before the center was done if the temperature was too high. 50 degrees lower, I guarantee it'll come out. And try a name brand. Yeah. Sugar. Yeah. And, and room temperature, get the butter yeah, around 67 yeah. degrees, malleable, but uh, not soft and not hard, and make sure the eggs are room temperature. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll try it and let you know how I oh, do. Oh, please All do. Right. You know, that's, the, that's we always want to know the follow-up. Okay, great. Thanks, Thank Kathy. Thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In just a bit, I chat with Brett Anderson. He's restaurant critic at the New Orleans Times-Picayune. He's also a two-time James Beard Award winner. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. 
you know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. You know, I first met Brett Anderson, the restaurant critic at the New Orleans Times-Picayune, when I interviewed him about the food scene in New Orleans post-Katrina. Out of disaster came a much more united city. And today I speak with Brett again, but this time about the future of New Orleans and not the past. 
Brett City has always been a culinary diaspora, Cajun, Creole, Southern, and West African. Today, however, it's also Middle Eastern, Asian, and a hundred other cultures. So we asked the question, what about New Orleans in 2050? Hey, Brett, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Chris? So I actually did some research for this interview. I went back and looked at your, well, you know, somebody's got to do it once in a while. Uh, your top 10 dishes of 2017 and 16, which has become uh, something that everyone reads down in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. Uh, some expected things, Trout's Meunier at Galatoire's, a gumbo from Upper Line, King Cake. But there was also uh, hummus with curried fried cauliflower and caramelized onions. Mm. There was tea-smoked cobia with cucumber and spruce. There was a reimagined ranch dressing with coconut and cucumber in it from Maypop. And uh, there was a ramen dish. So uh, what's going on? I, You know, what is going on? First of all, I would say that this reputation that New Orleans has had you know, for several generations now, that it is a city that where thousand chefs cook the same 10 recipes. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there was a period when that reputation or that stereotype held a kernel of truth. But even in those days, it was no, by no means the whole truth. And today, it's very far from the truth. Like, it's a great town to get some trout miniere in. It's a great town for gumbo. But there's a lot of diversity in the restaurant scene, both in sort of the high-end restaurants. Um, you mentioned the that hummus dish. And that comes from a restaurant called Shia, which is, you know, been, it's an Israeli restaurant in uptown New Orleans run by a, um, a chef who's been in town for a long time named Alan Shia, who's originally from Tel Aviv, but has cooked in New Orleans restaurants for a long time. He opened that a couple years ago, and it's become one of the more celebrated new restaurants in America. And it's, you know, sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of chefs here working in new restaurants that are doing a lot of things that people don't really expect to see in New Orleans. Uh, let's take Commander's Palace. Uh, you just wrote a piece on Ella Brennan. Um, Paul Prudhomme shows up. Emerald shows up. G- just take us through that briefly as, as sort of an example of the changing times. Sure. So Commander's Palace is a, um, is a very famous restaurant in New Orleans. It's a, a sprawling place built in an old plantation house in the, um, in the Garden District here. And the Brennan family has been owning that restaurant for decades now, and the Brennan family is sort of one of the more, it's probably the most famous restaurateur family here in New Orleans. And Ella Brennan, who was the subject of the profile that, that you referenced that I wrote for the New York Times, is now 91, you know, still a person of great vitality, who, when she took over that restaurant in real earnest in sort of the early 70s, she hired Paul Prudhomme, who is a famous chef from down here. He went on to become famous from Cajun country. And in doing that, she really created a significant shift in the American culinary arts because she was running a very much a destination establishment restaurant in a conservative southern town and hired someone who wasn't from Europe. And in those days, that was kind of a big deal, you know, that most fancy restaurants up until that point in the United States, employed French-born chefs. And Paul was not only an American, he was a, you know, a farm boy. And that in itself in New Orleans could have been somewhat scandalous. And in doing that, she really ushered commanders in New Orleans itself into sort of a new era of dining, where sort of blending of cultures and from for high and low and class lines became blurred in the restaurants. And then, you know, she hired Emeril Lagasse to, to replace Paul Prudhomme, and Emeril went on to become 
really the major architect of our celebrity shelf culture, those we have it today, for good and ill. So you, you wrote wonderful pieces in the, in the wake of the hurricane, and you, you told the story of chefs cooking on the sidewalk for people at their own expense uh, and the mm-hmm. city coming together. And, and you and I talked about that a few years ago. What, what is the legacy of, of that now? This, this August will be the 12th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Two years ago was the 10th anniversary, obviously, and that occasioned a lot of journalism about the legacy of Katrina. In some of the, of the pieces that I did at that time, one thing that was incredibly striking to me is that a quarter of the people that live in New Orleans today did not live here when Hurricane Katrina hit. Hmm. And so that kind of collective memory doesn't permeate like it once did. You know, it doesn't dominate conversation anymore. But it does dominate, I think, still the politics of New Orleans. You know, I particular well, the state of Louisiana, particularly where it comes to sort of flood control and um, our eroding coast. And I do believe still that the people who lived through it, like myself, you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago. You know, I, I still believe that we're a community that is at risk and that it's important for people not to forget that. As far as how it plays out in restaurants, I mean, I think that Katrina did occasion a moment where the city and its restaurateurs had to think about first getting the city back on its feet and then thinking about what kind of city it wanted to be in the future. And it's starting to become impossible to ignore all of the influences in the food and the restaurants and the cooking of New Orleans that aren't the sorts of influences that have long been associated with the city, I think in some ways Katrina helped unleash that. It helped give people sort of the strength and inspiration to try new things. You know, every city in America is a better place to eat than it was five years ago. New Orleans isn't alone in that. But I do still think there is an energy of having risen above Hurricane Katrina that permeates the city. The bane of being a restaurant critic is people call or email and say, I'm coming to New Orleans next week. Where should I eat? And I know <laughs> I know, having done this, uh, the, the former restaurant critic of the Washington Post, I think it was all voicemail. She just wanted to go hide in a bunker. <laughs> but despite that, uh, I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you. So I, I, let's assume I come to New Orleans. I, I know about Antoine's and Galatoire's. I know about some of the new stuff. Where, where would I go to get a New Orleans that's the everyday experience for people who actually live there? Are there, where should I go? What should I do? How, how could I figure that out? Well, it, a, a general answer to that is leave New Orleans. <laughs> um, and by that, I mean that, you know, New Orleans is a metropolitan area and the, the real modernizing forces have been focused on sort of city proper, the, the areas close to the river, which are the areas that most of the tourists know, the French Quarter, uptown New Orleans, the Garden District. Um, that is where you're seeing a lot of the, you know, these new coffee shops and bakeries that are sprouting up that, that um, as a local, I very much welcome. And, but I think it is safe to say that they are kind of starting to crowd out the longer tenured New Orleans businesses um, that have been there. But that's not true across the river in Jefferson Parish or down in, in, in St. Bernard Parish where you go to a place like Rocky and Carlos, which has been, you know, it's a Sicilian-American New Orleans neighborhood place where they put 
beef gravy on the French fries. <laughs> and in Metairie, which is a, a suburb, but where the sort of neighborhood boiled seafood joints still permeate. And I'm, I'm not saying that those things don't still exist in New Orleans itself, but the New Orleans that I remember from where I, when I moved here is easier to find on the outskirts of town now because those are the places that have been less affected by gentrification and I think still contain a higher density of people that have lived there for decades. There's been a lot of discussion, I think, lately, or I've come across it in talking to people on this show, uh, so many of the things that came from West Africa, like gumbo, for example, or Mm -hmm. Carolina gold rice or jambalaya or all these other things. Is that, uh, is, and New Orleans obviously has a lot of that influence. Is that something that's very much part of the culture, the, the connection between West Africa and New Orleans or not? Well, it's, it's a fact. The connection is a fact. But I believe that it could become more prominent in the conversation about the influences that contributed to the culture of New Orleans, particularly in its food and music. You know, I mean, the, the West African influence on music is inescapable as well. I do believe in the time that I've been here in New Orleans that there has been more of a focus in the journalistic community of trying to surface the contributions of African Americans in the cuisine here. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, our, the, the dining rooms and kitchens of the restaurants in New Orleans do not reflect the same diversity you see in the population at large. We just had a public forum just a couple weeks ago, in fact, about, like, where are all the black chefs in New Orleans? And so... That influence is very real, but I think where it comes to like distributing proper credit, historically speaking, for the people who created this culture, I think there's still some like makeup work to do there. So, so here's my last question, which I I think about all the time. You you start with a culture or a place that's known for something specific. It's very local. It's there because of history. It's a mix and mashup of different cultures. You end up with a cuisine of New Orleans, which there wasn't one cuisine, but it was fairly well defined in the minds of people coming to New Orleans. Then you have an explosion the last 20 years of of people from all over the world creating all sorts of food, the ramen, the Middle East, et cetera. So now you have You've gone from lack of diversity, well, it's diversity, but within a certain context, to massive diversity of, of choices, like our whole culture. W- what's step three? Well, I, I would say that New Orleans cuisine, you are correct, that it has been a cuisine that has been sort of fixed in the minds of the public for, for decades. But it's also true that New Orleans wasn't really a destination for it. You know, it being a tourist destination is a fairly modern phenomenon. Um, some of the folks we talked about earlier in this conversation, Ella Brennan, Paul Prudhomme, Elmer Lagasse, had a lot to do with that. And they're all modern figures. And so one of the things that the public, the aspects of New Orleans cuisine that a lot of the public hasn't seen firsthand is how it's always changed. You know, that has been part of the of its spirit from the get-go. It contains, even in its pure form, for lack of a better word, I put in quotes around pure, that many people think of it. Um, you know, French Creole, the Trotmaniers, you know, those were sort of fusion dishes at, at, from the get-go. The Spanish and African influence, the German influence, all those things were in here. And so I would say that New Orleans food was always sort of built to change. It's part of its 
kind of founding mandate in some ways. And, and so that I think that the, it, it's, it's sort of well positioned to maintain its status as a singular cuisine that also happens to change with the times without losing its identity because its identity was always fluid. And, and I also think that there is this culture here where people do, both citizens and visitors, natives and visitors, want to go to these older restaurants. They want to experience the past at dinner. And I just don't think that those restaurants are being threatened by the changes we're seeing around New Orleans. That was Brett Anderson, restaurant critic at the New Orleans Times-Picayune. New Orleans has never been just one thing. It was settled in 400 AD, originally by the Mississippian culture, and later by Native Americans. The French took over in 1718, and they named it after the Duke of Orleans. In 1763, it was ceded to the Spanish, and then in 1803, it was sold by Napoleon as part of the Louisiana Purchase. Commander's Palace, Antoine's, and Dukey Chase are now joined by restaurants such as Shia, which serves modern Israeli food. Change, you know, that's what made New Orleans great in the first place. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're heading into the kitchen to chat with Milk Street's Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm in the midst of a conundrum. It's a skewered chicken conundrum. I grill a lot all throughout the year. You know, I do boneless pieces of chicken on a skewer, like a kebab. Uh, They often get overcooked, but the point is they just don't have a lot of flavor. And so I want the flavor of the grill, but I don't get much chicken flavor. So you're going to solve the problem. I am. I am. And you're not alone with that problem. Chicken skewers are very popular, and they are also often overcooked. So to start, we use a boneless, skinless chicken thigh. The dark meat isn't going to overcook. It's going to stay juicy. And because it's boneless and skinless, it cooks really quickly. And then we're going to infuse the chicken with the flavor of shermoula. And shermoula is a Moroccan spice blend. It can really vary, but our version has cumin and coriander and some lemon. And we mix that with olive oil to make a paste. And then we put it on the chicken, and it just marinades for about 15 or 20 minutes. So when it's grilled, do you actually taste that marinade? I mean, you have other things in the marinade, too, except spices. What else is in there? Right, Chris. There's some ginger. There's olive oil. And and that paste is really what brings the marinade together. And you are going to taste the flavors from the cumin and the coriander. Now, you don't want to leave the marinade on for any longer than 30 minutes because the enzymes from the ginger and also the lemon juice will start to break down the meat and it can get mushy. But it doesn't need to penetrate all the way through. It's just infusing that flavor into the top layers of the meat. And there's a little honey in that, too. And there's some honey for sweetness. That's right. And that's also going to help caramelize. So the lemons, you don't just squeeze them in the marinade. You actually cook them, right? That's right, Chris. So we actually grill the lemons, and that helps get rid of some of the brassy flavor of the citrus, and it also caramelizes the sugars. So we grill the lemons. We put a little more honey. Remember, there was some honey in the marinade. We put a little more honey on the lemons, and we squeeze that over the chicken. So that's the answer to getting flavor into skewered chicken pieces. A great marinade, grill the lemon, add the lemon juice at the end, lots of bold spices, and it's like Tuesday night dinner, right? It's easy. Exactly. It takes only 10 to 12 minutes for the actual grilling. And then to add even more flavor, we like to sprinkle some fresh herbs on the grilled chicken, mint, parsley, any combination. It's quick and it's really delicious. Catherine, thank you very much. Tuesday night chicken. You're welcome, Chris. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. 
You can find this week's recipe on our website. That's 177milkstreet.com. As always, you can subscribe and listen to our podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of, uh, of phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Bob Caldwell from Twinsburg, Ohio. How can we help you? Well, I've enjoyed both of you on television over the years, and... Uh, one of the questions that I had is, uh, in looking at Milk Street Magazine, I decided to make whipped cream biscuits. And two things uh, occurred to me in making it. One is it calls for a half teaspoon of kosher salt. Right. And as you all know, regular salt, let's say, weighs one. Morton kosher salt weighs... Like three one point two, yeah. And the other one is a uh, half. When you have a recipe in your magazine that says kosher salt, which kosher salt are you talking about? Because it makes a difference. Excellent question. Diamond crystal. Diamond crystal. You'd have to use two teaspoons per teaspoon of table. Morton's uh, kosher is about one point two or three to one, or a heaping teaspoon to one teaspoon. So you're right. It makes a big difference. Big difference. Good and, call. And, 
if it's something where you're going to come back later and salt it, that's fine. But not but in a biscuit. When you have a biscuit, I mean, right. it's done deal. You can't you, change it. You're absolutely right. It's even worse than that. Sometimes we just say salt in the recipe, although in the ingredient list we say kosher salt. So I think we need to remind people it's kosher and remind people which brand because it does make a huge difference. You're right. You're going to say diamond crystal every single time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It'll, get, it'll get a dollar every time I... <laughs> Yeah, I know about you. You're always looking. No, no, you no. Don't t- you don't take an- ads. So. I don't take ads, but I think you're right. We have to specify. Yeah. Okay. I have another question. Sure. If you do the weights in grams, why grams as opposed to regular ounces? Grams are the convention around the world. B, they're much okay. more precise. Ounces are not, as you can imagine, right. are very precise. So you have 465 grams per pound, is that right? Something like that. But it, it's much more specific, so it's... It's much more fine-tuned. Yeah, it's much more fine-tuned, okay, and that's what the rest of the world that. uses, except the English, who well, I know. have weird English measurements. Okay. So. One of the things that I wanted to mention is one of the memorable Sarah Moulton shows that I saw was when she was raging against uh, ultra-pasteurized cream. Yes. Good for Way her. Way to go, Sarah. Keep up the good okay. work. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad you saw that. Well, ultra-pasteurized cream has no culinary use at all. There are many French recipes, tarts and things, that use real cream. You can't make those recipes here because they don't thicken up properly. They no. have no flavor. Right. You know what ultra-pasteurized cream is? Something, it's a white liquid, but it has absolutely no flavor. So yeah. I, I, we're with you. Okay. I'm on your team, Bob. Yes. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Thanks for calling. Okay, keep up the good work. We will. Appreciate thank you. both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi there. My name is Kirkley. How can we help you? So I had a question about chicken and turkey burgers. I really love to grill, but I seem to be having a couple problems with them. I've tried different recipes, but what seems to happen is it's like they cook too quickly and they get kind of dark on the outside, and then by the time they're cooked through, they're pretty dry. And then I've also tried recipes where I mix in, like, shredded zucchini or herbs right. to kind of try to keep them moist, and those fell completely apart. So I'm a little stumped. Two things. Uh, you can use a panade, which is a couple slices of bread mashed with some milk. Oh. That's an old Italian method, uh, which will help hold them together and also keep them moist. I find now, I don't use really high heat on a grill anymore. In fact, if I cook a chicken, I'll heat one side and the other and put the chicken in the middle on a gas grill where there's no heat or on a charcoal grill on the side that has no charcoal. And I find that you get a very good crisp on the skin, but you don't overcook it. So with a burger, I would also suggest you might cook it on the side without heat and then finish it off on the hot side. But that way, it's less likely to fall apart. It's less likely to be overcooked on the outside. I mean, Sarah, what do you think? No, I mean, I think that's a great idea, except that I I do think there's some issues with chicken and turkey, both in terms of dryness, which is why the panade's a good idea. I think also adding vegetables like sautéed onions. That's tough. Also, or shredded Napa cabbage I've added, which adds a lot of moisture. Odo Lingi had a recipe for turkey meatballs with shredded zucchini. Yes, that's what Kirkley mentioned. That's the recipe I tried. Well, you you know what you got to do? I've made that recipe half a dozen times. Take the shredded zucchini, put it in a kitchen towel, and squeeze Squeeze it it to death. And really twist it. And if you get all that liquid out, it'll be okay. But it's still delicate, and I do it in a skillet. Well, you I could, don't do it on a okay. grill. Yeah. You could yeah. also add an egg. An egg is a yes. binder. Good point. I thought about that. I just haven't gotten around to trying a recipe with an egg. But the milk and the Panade. bread. That's, yeah, that would be good. Yeah. It would keep it moist. Well, also, beef, when you grind it and start 
molding it into a patty, it gets gluey and sticky. And that's not true of turkey and chicken as much. So it, yeah, it doesn't hold together like the same way. kind of all around, which is what I've noticed. I, I would do this in a skillet uh, because a grill is just hard to manage with something that falls apart or use off-heat, offset cooking. Yeah. We have a, like a classic Weber grill with charcoal. You dump all the coals on one side exactly. and then start the cooking process on the cool side and then move start it Start on the, the cool side, side, flip it with the top on. And then when it gets close to being cooked, like up to 100 or 110, put it over the heat and just sear both sides very quickly. Yeah, okay. The good thing about that, too, is at that point it will be firm. Yeah. So you'll be able to flip it. Yeah. The other thing is, okay. and Chris and I think are going to disagree on this one. Never. Is you should always oil the food, not the grill. No, you should oil the food okay. and the grill. Okay. And then would you say it's better to, like, if I'm mixing things in, to put oil into the meat and then no. form the patties, or just make them and then brush oil onto the patties? Onto before? the patties, the outside. Oh, thank you so much. It's really yeah. wonderful to talk to you both. I've been following you for quite some time. Both Thanks. Of you, so it's a pleasure. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Thanks, thank you. Kirkley. All right. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here are my five top cooking tools. Number one, the Chinese vegetable cleaver. It's about four inches deep. It has a very thin blade, which means it makes it very easy to slice through things like vegetables. Very good for whacking garlic and pieces of ginger, and also really terrific to clean up your cutting board. Number two, tongs. We use short to medium length tongs for almost all of our cooking in a skillet. It's good for baking as well, and they're inexpensive. Number three, a fish spatula. This is very wide bladed. It's very thin on the edge, which makes it perfect for lifting fish out of a skillet. Also great for grilled meats and cookies, and also good for stirring chunky pasta, believe it or not. Number four, the InstaRead thermometer, obviously good for meats and poultry. We use it for checking breads. They should be about 200 degrees, cakes, cheesecake, custards. The Thermopen is about 100 bucks. It's at the top of the heap, but you can also buy $20 models from people like OXO that work pretty well. And number five, the Rasp Grater. This is a lot easier than using a large grater. It obviously does zest very well in small amounts of cheese. We also here at Milk Street like to grate shallots, garlic, and ginger. Is a low-salt diet a good thing or maybe a bad thing? Well, that's the key question on Dr. Aaron Carroll's mind today. He's, of course, a regular at Milk Street and a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. He also writes for the New York Times' Upshot column. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, my wife and I enjoy salt. We, we, we consume a fair amount of it. And I, I've always found in cooking the one thing people do wrong almost every time is they don't add enough salt to their home-cooked food, and therefore it's relatively tasteless. So you have an update on the, uh, the salt conundrum. So part of the problem is that there's a fairly well-received and well-understood idea that people who have too much salt in their diet, it can lead to high blood pressure, and then that, especially with the, the high salt levels compounded with the high blood pressure, can lead to bad cardiovascular outcomes, heart attacks, even death. And there are decent studies which show that you know people who consume high-salt diets, more than 7 grams of sodium a day, uh, actually can have higher risks of cardiovascular events and death. The problem is that, as with so many things with respect to food and health, we know too much of something is bad for us, so we just assume that less and less and less and less is therefore better. The problem is that there's a growing body of evidence 
that very low sodium diets and the people who consume really small amounts of salt have worse outcomes in many mm. respects than the people who are consuming too much of it. There were some huge, huge studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago uh, that followed something like 100,000 people in 12 to 18 countries in Europe, looking at how much salt they ate in their, in their outcomes. And they found that people consuming less than three grams of salt a day had significantly higher rates of cardiovascular events like stroke or heart attack and death than the people hmm. who were consuming seven grams or more a day. Really? The real problem is that people are ignoring this evidence. You know, the, 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 the FDA says we should consume about 2.3 grams of sodium a day. The WHO will argue that the FDA is crazy and that we should have no more than two grams a day. And the American Heart Association will tell you that the WHO is, is out of their minds too and that it should be 1.5 grams a day. There's no evidence for this at all. There's no studies that show this is good. Um, certainly no randomized controlled trials. And there's a fairly you know, large amount of evidence that it's bad. And lots of groups like the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Sciences, have said straight out there's no evidence for these very low-salt diets. And yet big organizations continue to push for them again and again. You and I have talked about this a lot. But one more time, how is it when you... Uh, I'm sure you have other things to do, but you look into these conventional wisdom things and you just you decide or you find that there's a huge body of evidence, overwhelming evidence to support one side of the story or the other. And yet it becomes completely ignored, like your uh, studies of, of low sodium diets. How is it possible that we have the facts, but we don't use the facts? The problem is that I think partially it takes so many years for these things to trickle down from individual studies into clinical practice, let alone into sort of the general mindset of the American people or, or you know, the people of the, of the world. But we don't even notice. I, I saw this study in the New England Journal of Medicine and it blew my mind. I mean, it absolutely uh, drove me crazy. And I said, I have to write about this. And then I just started to look into the data. And I was shocked because this was not the first study to, to tell this story, and yet I didn't even know about it. Um, there have been previous studies in the Journal of the American Medical Association and other journals that found similar findings that when they looked at uh, health professionals, because there are a bunch of uh, long-term cohort studies that follow nurses and doctors, people who were consuming very low-salt diets had higher risks of problems. There were even a couple randomized controlled trials, mostly in older people, who found that if they, if they reduced the sodium diet of elderly people, it actually, again, led to worse outcomes if they went very low. Um, and the, 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 the kicker is they followed this up a year later with even further data. What it showed was that people who have high blood pressure, if they're consuming more than seven grams of salt a day, that's a real problem. And that can lead to increased issues such as heart attack, stroke, or death. But people with normal blood pressure, even if they consume high levels of salt at that level, then they really see no bad outcomes. It's only people with hypertension who are consuming this high level of salt that are really at risk. And consuming low levels of salt for everyone, very low levels, can be really problematic and actually lead to worse outcomes. Man, you know, I like talking to you. <laughs> all the things <laughs> all I love. Right? All the things in life that I love that everyone tells me is bad turn out to be good for me. So uh, Yeah, it, 
they, and it's more often than that. It's like that. You know, the the average American eats about three point four grams of salt a day. That's what the average person's mm. intake is. And given that many many people are very high, and we all have a lower bound of zero, that means that most Americans are consuming less than three and a half grams of salt a day. That is right in the sweet spot. So this constant drumbeat that we're all consuming too much salt and we all need to eat much less of it, there's really no good reason to do that at all. And it's my turn to throw in a statistic, which is that only 5% of the salt we consume comes from home cooking. It's all in processed yes. food. So. So there you go. That, that's the real issue is that, you know, people are it's, – it's the salt or the sodium that's in the processed foods that we can't control. That's where most people are getting too much salt anyway. If we would cut that stuff out, then people could add as much salt to their cooking or on their plate as they really wanted to. So my list of sinful foods is getting much shorter. <laughs> well, good. That's our goal. <laughs> Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll, professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine. Now, do you wake up in the morning thinking that you need more advice about how to live your life? Well, if you've been around a while, you know that advice is, well, mostly worthless. Don't eat salt, do eat salt. Don't eat fat, do eat fat. Drink lots of water, drink when you are thirsty. So here's a better recipe. Skip the hokum prescriptions and use the one recipe that is always right. That would be, of course, common sense. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. If you missed us, you can always listen to our podcast, by the way, it's free, on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Now, don't forget to subscribe. You'll automatically get your shows every week on your smartphone if you do. Also, check out our brand new website. That's 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe, learn more about Milk Street, get free recipes, and subscribe to our magazine. That's it for now. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 